Well, this uh, is a continuance, uh, blah, a continuance. Sound like a bad omen. A continuance of our study in the false prophets. Remember, we said there were major themes in this book of Second Peter, and and uh, chapter two is uh, covers the major theme of false prophets. Now we looked at these false prophets, and it's been a couple of weeks uh, since I've been out because of the funeral and some things. So obviously we have forgotten. But uh, just having on a quick review up here, uh, the first three verses were about their destructive doctrines, and we talked about what heresy was. Heresy comes from the root word, which which specifically means a choosing, and that which is chosen in its opinion with the implication that it's the deliberate thing. And so we get the word heresy, we get the word sect. And so in Scripture, when the Pharisees and the Sadducees are called sects, they are they are heretical in their viewpoints because they take their opinion of Scripture and their interpretation of Scripture, and they interpret it to fill their religious dogma and their desires for power and control over the people. So uh, heresies always evolve and always change commensurate upon what the uh, exploitation that the leaders want uh, in a particular time. So we see, we've seen over the years heresies have changed, and today heresies change, and we, we will look at heresies and how they change when we get to uh, the fourth section, Deceptions Exposed. I'm going to talk about uh, antinomialism. I'm going to talk about easy believism. I'm going to talk about name it, claim it. I'm going to talk about uh, uh, speaking forth the word, and we'll talk about all these different dogmas and heresies that are used to exploit, and that that word means to merchandise people, and they do it because of their hearts are filled with covetousness, and we'll expose not by name, but by method and by what they teach, and so as we look at this, we'll look, we look at some of the destructive doctrines. Today, we're going to look at the doom of the false teachers and the false prophets, and I was just thinking about this, how fitting this is for our day. We are, this section, uh, verses 4 through 9, which we're going to cover today, is, uh, I call it manna for us in the wilderness today. It's, it's, a, it's, it's, it's running water from a rock. We are, as, in P, as Peter was in his day, First Peter was about the persecution and the struggle of the pilgrim church that was fleeing persecution. This book is uh, this book is about the false teachers, and we, as Peter was, we are surrounded by false teachers. We're fat, we're surrounded by false prophets. We are surrounded by apostasies and spiritual wickedness in the heavenly places, and it's getting worse and worse. And this section of this chapter is a bright is a bright shining light because section one three and four are very dark and disturbing and should give us great pause but this section i call it section two is a is very encouraging to the people and it should be very encouraging to us and it is encouraging for two reasons number one it's encouraging because we understand that God, because he's holy, because he's just, he will ultimately and finally punish all wickedness. It seems like they get away with it now. It seems like there is no struggle in their days. Remember Psalm 73, 
the psalmist says, my foot nearly slips. And he tells why, because he's envious of the wicked. But it seems like they always get away with stuff. It always seems like they're blessed, that they don't have trouble, that they've got money, that they don't have the typical issues that people who try to live Christ-like do in this world. And then as he enters into God's sanctuary, which is a picture of the Holy Spirit, uh, brings him to understanding he sees the end of the wicked and he sees that God has set their feet in slippery slopes and slippery places. And that's where the great uh, sermon sinners in the hands of an angry God came from that, that God will eventually, because he's a holy and just judge and he is judge of the whole earth. He will eventually and finally judge the wicked and the false prophet. He will separate the wheat from the chaff and he will be glorified, and we will be vindicated, his people, who desire to live godly lives. So that's one reason why this section is specifically encouraging, because we know that God is ultimately the king of the earth, and he will do right, and vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. So we are very encouraged by that. The second thing, and we're going to look at it in verse 9, is that God knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation we are put in this world to live in this world to be light to be salt to be taught to be afflicted to be trained for his glory for for our ultimate good but god ultimately knows how to deliver us godly those of us who are in christ who have been divine partakers of his nature those of us who have been given the zoa life as we've talked about in, in the first chapter, those of us who are practically growing in grace through diligence and making sure of our call and election, us who are in Christ, we will one day be taken out of this trouble <clears throat> that is going to give us some understanding of what's going to happen in the future <clears throat> when God judges the earth. And it will also give us an understanding of how he has taken godly men, i.e. Noah and i.e. Lot, uh, in their difficult days, during their trials and during the temptations. These temptations are not the internal temptations, but these are the external temptations that afflict all of us who live in this world. So that's why this is such a shining section in this otherwise very dark and gloomy chapter that really gives us the reality of what we're up against as believers. So Peter's days believers <clears throat> would be encouraged. They were They were a minority as we are. Franklin Graham said this week that he has never seen such hatred for the Christian faith as he sees now. And it's going to get darker and darker specifically. And even if the election turns the way most of us in this room want it to, even if it turns the other way, which it looks like it's going to, we need to be aware that it's going to get darker and it's going to get darker very quick. Okay, so we need to be aware that we are going to be inundated with hate and accusations and that we are going to be separated out as the problem. And we're going to be accused of being the source of the problem. And if we were eradicated, we would have a utopia. But this is our fault because of us. So if you're going to see this more and more. Believe me, you're going to. But uh, so this is going to be a, a shining light in this. And so what God does is he gives three illustrations in this text 
that he is going to finally judge the wicked. And he he proves that he's going to in the future because what he's done in the past. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. His character never changes. He's from everlasting to everlasting. He doesn't change with the culture. He doesn't go with the flow. He doesn't learn and, and come to a different understanding that he's had in the past and he was wrong in the past so he's going to be lenient and uh, that's not who God is and if you believe that about God uh, uh, you don't read the word as you ought and you don't have a proper understanding I'll say that to be uh, be correct so what God is going to do in the Holy Spirit as he as he as he bears witness through Peter he's going to give us three illustrations of the uh of the doom of the teacher. So look at illustration. Let me read this uh, real quick. Uh, I'm going to just read chapter uh, two, verses four through nine, and we're going to look at the three illustrations. I really want to spend most of my time on Lot and lessons from Lot. Uh, just so happens that when God was chastening me and working in me and bringing me back to himself after 10 years of rebellion, he used a evangelist by the name of Bailey Smith. I was at First Baptist Church. I don't know if y'all were there at the time. or Y'all may have been there, and I didn't know you, but he came and preached, and the sermon was pitching your tent too near Sodom. And I was Lot, and I pitched my tent too near Sodom, and I became the mayor of Sodom, metaphorically speaking. And we'll talk about that in a second, and we're going to look at these lessons that I was taught as the Holy Spirit brought me to repentance and uh and uh, praise God, it's it, that was 35 years ago. But uh, but so we're thankful that God would use an Old Testament text about a questionable guy named Lot, and we'll look at lessons from him. But let's read this, and I will uh, uh, let's look at this. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly and delivered righteous lot who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked for that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Then conditional statement, then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. And then verse 10 on, we'll look at that under the category of the depravity of the false teachers. And we'll look at their, uh, and their, uh, how they handle dignitaries and angels. We'll look at that next week. But anyway, verse four, we see the first illustration that God in history has judged sin. And so because he's judged it in the past, he will judge it in the future. And we can be certain of this. The first illustration is the angels who sinned. He cast them into hell and delivered them into chains of darkness. Now, who are these angels who sinned? 
This is uh, an area where we want to be very careful not to speculate. The scripture doesn't speak a lot about it. There are some intimations about who he is referring to, and there are two most uh, understood uh, explanations for this phrase, the angels who sinned are. Number one is the angels that sinned are the angels in Genesis chapter six, verses one through four. So let's look at Genesis chapter six, one through four. This is what, uh, most conservative Commentators and scholars would understand MacArthur, Hybert, Calvin, uh, some of the ones I read after religiously, uh, they would come with this conclusion that the angels that sinned, that God is going to judge and reserve in chains, are the angels who are in chapter 6 of, 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 of Genesis. Look at chapter 6 of Genesis 1 through uh, 4. Now, it came to pass... When men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them, then the sons of men, the sons of men phrasing, most commentators understand that that is angels. The sons of men saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of whom when they chose. And the Lord said, my spirit will not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. And there were giants on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. And the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great and every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So... These scholars would say that uh, the angels who sinned are the angels who left their domain in heaven. Angels are ministering spirits. They are created beings. God created them before he created man. Angels are above men in their stature, in their, in their abilities. And angels were born, as we understand from scripture, with no sin natures and they had complete free will. And so angels were created to minister to God, uh, in time past. We do not know when, nor does scripture say. Uh, the understanding from these verses is that these angels, fallen angels, who went with Satan when Satan said in his pride, I don't want to be the chief singer in God's choir. I'm not content with being submissive to God. I, in my pride, I want to be God myself. And so we saw, see that in Isaiah 14 a bit. We see that most specifically in Ezekiel 28. Scholars believe this is before the creation of the earth. Satan fell and with him fell angels. And these are called demonic angels now. Those who followed Satan, same motivations, same ideologies. They were uh, obviously doomed then when they made this choice. They're doomed forever. So these fallen angels who went with Satan when he fell, they are the ones who left their domain, the domain God had given them and the specific roles God had given them in in, in heaven. 
Uh, and there's just to be specific, there's a third heaven, the heaven of heavens where God is. The, he- the second heaven is where the birds and the stars and, 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 and where we see. And then the third heaven is the earth. I mean, and, and then heaven, which we is the earth. So there's three, uh, modes, but Satan, uh, existed. And then of course he's been cast out of the intimate heavens in the presence of God where he was with, uh, when he was in Job's. Now he's cast into the second heavens and so we understand there's a great warfare going now uh revelation speaks of of the angel know the devil knowing his time is he brings his angels and they wreak havoc on the nation of israel during the tribulation but that's sort of the process we see but these angels are the ones who fail according to most conservative scholars and because they fail they are uh they are giving three uh Punishments. They are number one. They're cast to hell. That word hell is an interesting word. It's not the typical word for hell. It's borrowed from Greek mythology and the word is Tartarus. And that word Tartarus, the Greeks taught and Jews later came to believe is a place where fallen angels were sent. It's the lowest hell. It's the deepest pit. It's the most terrible place of torture torture and external suffering. So some of these angels were sent to Tartarus and they were bound there. Some were not bound. We know in Revelation that some some demonic angels are released and they're going to wreak havoc on the earth during the sixth trumpet judgment. And then some uh, uh, are not bound at all. So uh, we don't understand the heavenlies. We can't speculate on why. But uh, this is the understanding that these fallen angels have been cast down to Tartarus. They have been number two. They have been delivered into chains. That speaks of a permanent binding. Uh, and now we understand that not all demons are bound. And some demons that aren't bound fear being bound. Remember when uh, Jesus cast out the legion of demons and uh, they said, don't cast us into the abyss. They feared being cast into the abyss, this Tartarus, this permanent bounding. And they said, instead, let us run into the swine. And so so the angels who weren't bound feared being bound. So they were aware that some of their fellow fallen angels had been bound permanently. So I think that's the primary understanding of this phrase. Uh, the angels who sinned. Some scholars uh, think it's also uh, refers to uh, uh, just the initial rebellion of Satan and his angels and say, say it's not just uh, the angels who sinned and left their dominion and, and, uh, and entered men. And so those men mated with women and had children and offspring and giants. But they say it's also, uh, the original angels who fell. We do not know. That's speculative, but we know that God is going to and did judge them. And because if he can judge his, his top of his creation, he is judge of the whole world, so he will judge men who is made after his image also. So we understand that it starts at the top of the food chain, let me say. His created being specifically set apart for himself. It comes down to the 
to us men who are made in his image. And so the second thing that we see from history. Yes, ma'am. Well, though, when you were just talking about, the, I mean, the levels of heaven and uh-huh. where God dwells. Uh-huh. The, the middle, is that where angels dwell and Demons, whatever, that, is that where the spiritual world My understanding is yes. Okay, that's, that's my understanding, yes. And but of course, the we. Heaven is where the birds and stuff are. But in the, yeah, and earth where we will, yes. Yeah. Okay. That's my understanding. That's, that's, I may have missed, if I misspoke, but did everybody hear that? The, the three levels uh, that I talked about, uh, in God's presence, they are cast out of God's presence. The, the fallen angels, they are now dwell in the second heavens. Uh, where they can affect and affect men. And then we, of course, are in the third heavens where we dwell here on earth. So uh, clarification for that. Number two example of this illustration that God will judge uh, evil. And this is a beacon of light to us and to the people during Peter's day is a second example is the flood. Verse five. So we, he didn't spare the angels. Verse five, he didn't spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing the flood on the world of the ungodly and ungodly. How many people survived the flood? Eight people. How many people were alive when the flood came? We have no way of knowing. A bunch. So God is serious about his holiness. Why did God destroy the world at the flood? What does he say? Let's look back at the scripture. Many reasons. Uh, I touched on one of them as the, as the mating of the demonic angels with the sons of God produced a wicked, violent, giant offspring. Verse chapter six, verse five, the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great and that intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Okay, so we see that's one of the reasons why he destroyed because of the wickedness of men and every thought was wicked. And uh, we see in verse 13. Uh, the end of all flesh has come before me for the earth is filled with violence. So the, the world was wicked and the world was violent. So if you think God destroyed the ancient world because of wickedness and violence, what is the characteristic of the present world? Is it not wickedness and violence? So if God didn't spare that world, do you think he's going to spare this world? If he did, he would be inconsistent. And I will say this very boldly. He would not be God because he would not be just and he would not be holy. Right. So we understand because of history and because of the nature of God that he will destroy this world as he destroyed the ancient world. He will not do it by flood, but he will do it by he will do it through the effects of the tribulation. And he will eventually at the end of the age, he will melt this thing down and he will burn it all up. Every element will be burned up and he will make a heaven, new heaven and a new earth. So God is serious and he knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation. He took Noah and his three sons and three daughters and his wife, eight people. 
Can you imagine the grief that Noah got? Noah preached righteousness for 120 years while he was building that boat. Can you imagine the grief that Noah got building a boat for something called rain that had never happened before? You think you are maligned for being a believer in Jesus Christ? Can you imagine Noah? But he was faithful. The reason he was faithful is because there was no righteousness. But it says in chapter 6, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. So God in his mercy uh, chose Noah out of all the families of the world, out of the earth, and he gave him wives and children. Now, now they're going to repopulate the earth. But Mo, but Noah was a preacher of righteousness. And so we understand that God did that on the world of the ungodly. The third example that we see from scripture that would give us great hope that God is in charge and sovereign is the illustration of Sodom and Gomorrah. And that would be found in verse 6. God says, I turned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes. I condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who would afterward live ungodly. What is the great and primary sin of Sodom and Gomorrah? Homosexuality. And I will give you the evidence of that in a second. So if God, who is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, and his character never changed, judged the Sodomites and Sodom and Gomorrah for their wicked, sexual, immoral behavior, do you think he's going to take turn a blind eye and say, that's okay, today's culture? No, he will not. And so we stand, although painful as it is, with our sons and our daughters who are bent that way, it would be very easy for us to say, you know, I understand, hon, the culture's changed. I understand pressure. I know you've had bad relationships, and I know blah, 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 right? But we have to stand upon the word of God and say, God never changes, thus saith the Lord, and we better believe God, right? Because culture, emotions change. We would love to say it's going to be okay. God understands. He doesn't. He doesn't. And so we warn our loved ones. We pray for our loved ones. We care for our loved ones. But we never denounce God by okaying sin. Believe me, that's a temptation. But we cannot because we're not true to God, right? As hard as that is. So we see that God, and why did he do it the way he did it? It says he did it as a what? As an example. To what? To what afterward those who would live ungodly. So God is warning people. This is an example as he, as he threw down fire and brimstone upon that town. He was making Sodom and Gomorrah a metaphor for ungodliness and sexual immorality. And he was telling the planet and human beings that God is holy and he will not tolerate sexual immorality. And he says to flee from it. And he says not to go near it. And he means it. And he means it for us today as Christians, as 
as husbands and as wives. He means it for single people, and he means the only means to satisfy our appetite sexually is through a monogamous marital relationship with a man or a woman, right? So that's what he's ordained. That's what he's called it to be. And if you have a problem with that, you have a problem with God and who God is. Do I sound like I'm preaching? I'm sorry. (laughs) Anyway, so God uses examples to warn us and to encourage us of what he's going to do because of what he's done in the past. And so he condemns them to destruction and he warns us that those who live that way are going to be and going to suffer the same condemnation as they did in Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, I want to get to this. Does anybody perplexed by the story of Lot? Lot is a very interesting character and i would say based upon his effect on my life he's the most interesting character to me in the old testament because by his life his lifestyle the way he acts the way he reacts he would not give evidence that he is a believer but the scripture says Several times, as the Holy Spirit writes this, that Lot is righteous. Now, Lot is righteous not because of his righteous deeds. None of us are righteous by our righteous deeds. There is none righteous, no, not one. But Lot doesn't even, in most cases, even ever give evidence that there's any righteousness in him. And I'm going to show you the evidence he gives, and I'm going to show you the evidence he doesn't give. I'm going to show you his life, how it's compromised, the effects of his sin, and I'm going to show you the progress of sin in 17 minutes. Okay? The progress, Lot's story. This is the, this is what God used to bring me to himself. And it convicted me because I was Lot. Lot, who is Lot? Let's turn to chapter 13 of Genesis. As Peter says, he has, he has delivered just righteous Lot. So we need to understand Lot. Lot is Abraham's nephew. Is that, did I say that right? Yes. Abraham is his uncle, his brother's son. We don't know much about how he came to be his son, but we know that they were together in the plains and God blessed them. Abraham was was uh, was the was the father of faith. God chose Abraham when Abraham was a pagan in Haran with his daddy, worshiping other gods. And God said, "Abram, you go here, and I'm gonna make you a father of many nations." So God called Abram to the promised land, and He said, "I'm gonna bless you. I'm gonna make you the father of many nations." And through you, all the world is going to be blessed because you're going to be the father of faith. Okay, so this is a gift from God, the covenant he made with Abram. And so Lot, as 
an associate and a relative of Abram is part of the covenant. Okay, Abraham believes that God that Abr- that Lot is righteous because Abram intercedes for Lot, and he asks God to spare Sodom and Gomorrah if there were 50 righteous people, 45, 40, goes all the way down. What's the last number? 10? But he he believes and he assumes that Lot is part of the righteous covenant people, and he is righteous because he's just like Abram. He's been called righteous by God because he apprehends God by faith. The only way we can be righteous from Genesis to the Revelation, we are only righteous by apprehending God by grace through faith, Romans 4, okay? Never changes. So Abram believes that Lot is righteous. So we see them in Genesis chapter 13, and we see them, they've got a problem. God is blessed their 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 uh their livestock and their cattle and he's made them wealthy part of this blessing of God on Abram is that he's going to bless him he's going to give him wealth he's going to give him territory land and he's going to give him offspring as 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 vast as the stars in the heavens and the sands of the sea so Lot is a recipient of this grace through osmosis, I'll say, because he's uh, with Abram. And so they have a problem. They have too much stuff for their area. And so they're arguing amongst themselves. And uh, so there's a problem. And, and Abram says, Lot, you choose where you want to go. And wherever you want to go, I'll go the opposite way. So Lot gives us the first evidence that Lot is not right with God as his as his uncle Abram is. Abram says, you choose first. Abram had every right to say, you go left, I'll go right, you go there. But he didn't, and humility is an evidence that he's one of God's. He says, Lot, you make a choice because I'm living by faith, and it don't matter where you go, God's going to bless me, okay? So we understand that about the difference between Abram and Lot. So Lot, here we go. Look at look what Lot does, chapter 13, verse 10. This is how we start seeing sneaky suspicions of Lot's, uh, not where he needs to be. Chapter 13, verse 10, and Lot lifted his eyes and saw the plain of Jordan. It was well watered before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. Then Lot chose for himself all the plains of Jordan and Lot journeyed east. They separated from each other. Abram dwelt in Canaan and Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain and pitched his tent as far as Sodom. Lot knew the reputation of Sodom and Gomorrah. But Lot, look what he did. We get us evidence. He lifted up his eyes and he saw the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And selfishness is a part of who Lot is. Although God calls him righteous, Lot has issues. And Lot is a sinner. And Lot is is, is, is very infantile in his faith. So he chooses the fleshy route instead of the faith route. He picks what's best in his eyes. He violates First uh, John one uh, two thirteen through fifteen. Love not the world, the things that are in the world, the lust of the flesh. He did all of that to give demonstration of who he was as a. I call him a carnal believer, and uh, that's not the right word. A fleshy believer. That's not the right word. A uh, a uh, immature believer. Let's go with that word. 
to make all parties who are having heartburn when I said carnal Christian, because there's no such thing, right? Anyway, so we see Lot. So first thing we see is uh, his fleshy viewpoint, doesn't live by faith, looks, he, he's selfish, he just wants the best for himself. And even though he knows there's evil in Sodom and Gomorrah, he pitches his tent close to it. Isn't that nice? That's what I did. I, I knew wrong from right. I knew uh, truth. But I just sort of dabbled in sin at first. I, I, I started the drinking and I started the, 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 the chasing of the ladies and all the things that, that, that you do when you're in your youthful lust. I knew it was wrong. I was raised right. I knew the truth, but, uh, I pitched my tent near Sodom and I, I, I never actually, uh, 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 went full board in it, if you let me say that, but I dabbled in it when I'm 15, 16 years old, okay? And so that's what Lot did. He pitched his tent near. Now, look, look what happens. This is what happens to anybody dabbling in sin. It progresses. You know, Psalm 1 says, uh, you don't stand in the seat of the scorner or sit in the seat. Help me, Rusty. Psalm 1. Would you look that up? My order and my mind are not clear. Stand, sit, and stand. That's a progression of evil, okay? Sitting is when you get there and you arrive and you stay there. Uh, So uh, uh, do you got that, Rusty? You know what verse I'm looking at? Standeth not in the seat of the sinner. What is that? Not walk in the counsel. Blessed is a man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. Walk, stand, and sit. Sit. The progression of sin. So Lot starts by standing, right? In the way. Close to him. Knows it's wrong. Living by his flesh. Look at chapter 14, verse 12. This progression of sin. There is a war going on between five kings of the plains, five against four. Uh, the cities, the, uh, the, 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 the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah are defeated and Lot, look at verse chapter 14, verse 12. They took Lot, Abraham's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom. So time has taken place. He lived close to Sodom. In the next chapter, he lives in Sodom. You see the progress of it all? So my little story goes, I sort of dip my foot in the water, so to speak, metaphorically. And then later, I actually partook of the sin. So I lived in Sodom. Okay, so that's what sin does. It takes you further than you want to go, keeps you longer than you want to stay and costs you more than you want to pay. Okay, that's what sin does. So, so we, so we see Don and we see Lot and we see anybody who's been through this. And I know that you have in this room, and I'm sure you have on the video screen here too. This progress of sin, we're near it and now we live in it. And it's an amazing thing. God sends all these things into Lot's life. He lets him be captured by kings and he goes through all this chastening. And does that affect Lot at all? Does he ends up in the same place? Isn't that amazing? Are we hard-headed? Am I hard-headed? Am I stiff? I don't want to accuse any of you brothers for ever being like this, but 
God sends warning. He sends chastening. He sends help. And we, we, not only do we refuse help, but we enjoy being in trouble. That's an amazing thing. So Lot lives in Sodom now. And although God sends him warning, his uncle has to, has to, uh, uh, rescue him from death, he still stays in that God-forsaken place. That's shocking, isn't it? But that's that's who we are in our flesh. That's who we are by nature. Okay? Now, look at this progress. Now let's turn to chapter 19. Chapter 19. Abraham is interceded for Sodom and Gomorrah. God has told him, I'm going to destroy it. Abraham says, if there's 10 people, will you not destroy it? He said, I won't destroy it for 10 people. Guess what? There's not 10 people in there. So God is going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Now let's look at dear Lot. He's he's lived by it. He's lived in it. And now look what he's doing. Chapter 19, verse 1. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot is sitting at the gate of Sodom. He's the mayor of the town. That's where the leaders of the city sat at the gate. They gave wisdom. They gave, they gave, uh, they gave, uh, advice. They gave counsel. And so here we have Lot and his stubbornness and his hard headedness. He not only lives in Sodom, he's the head of Sodom. He's a mayor. He's a leader. Guess what Don did? Not only did I dabble in becoming of it, I became a leader of it and I led other people to participate in my sins like I did. And that's the ugly, progressive nature of sin. So Sodom is an illustration of sin, and Lot is an illustration of the progression of sin. So we see Lot now the leader of this wicked city. That's sad, isn't it? But that is... That is the true truth about sin and what it does. It makes you numb. It makes you, uh, it, it numbs you and it dulls your senses and it sears your conscience. And so here we have Lot leading the city. And you think that's horrible. And it is. But now I want to see what's really important. And I want to see, uh, the effects of sin. You know, sin doesn't tell you what it's going to do to you. It doesn't tell you the consequences. It lies. It just shows pretty pictures. But it doesn't show the ugly side. It doesn't show the consequences. It doesn't show any of this. But believe me, these consequences will affect you the rest of your life. I still suffer the consequences of my rebellious past. And so will you. God forgives us. And that sin is removed. It is forgiven. It is, it is taken away by the blood of Christ. But the consequences of it linger until the day you die. So my counsel to you, if you are dabbling in sin... If you are somewhere near Sodom, if it's a thought toward another woman or a man or whatever it is, believe you me, sin has horrible consequences and avoid them. 
run from them. So we see Lot. Now look at these effects of sin. Now we'll turn back to Second Peter. And we see this strange phrase. And I want to tell you what it means because it is very important that we understand it. And we see the, uh, the paradox of Lot. Look at this. Uh, now we're back to Second Peter chapter 2, verse 7. He delivered righteous Lot. Okay, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked for that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day, seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. So my question is, if this unrighteous deeds of these unrighteous people tormented and vexed his soul, why did he stay? Huh? Anybody know the answer to that question? And that word means uh, this, this, these, these, these effects of sin and this, the effects that sin had on Lot, as the scripture says, it vexed his righteous soul. Uh, uh, I, I love these understandings and, and descriptions. It means that Lot's inner reaction to the evil around him wore him down and exhausted him. They deeply distressed him and they tormented them. They literally oppressed him by the work and the wickedness of his fellow citizens. That fact that, that Lot was tormented by wickedness gave evidence that he was righteous. We think about that. The fact that their wickedness tormented him and oppressed him and vexed him, and it says it did it every day, that in itself is one of the evidences that Lot was righteous. And so eventually God in his grace started tormented me in my sin, and that gave the evidence that I was one of God's. My buddies that I led astray never bothered them that we did what we did. They never had any remorse, never had any repentance, and still to this day have no repentance or no change of heart. But the fact that that tormented me and convicted me and there was no pleasure in it, not that there wasn't pleasure in it, but that it didn't leave, leave a satisfaction and it brought conviction. That was evidence that I am one of God. Isn't that an amazing thing? Is it also evidence that the Holy Spirit was wooing you? Yes, that is how the Holy Spirit woos you when he brings you to conviction and he chastens you. I got in all kinds of trouble that my buddies didn't get in trouble. I got caught. I got I suffered consequences from my mom and my dad and my relationships with family members, my grandpa and my grandma, and there were effects in my whole family. I got in trouble. I got thrown into the pokey. I suffered consequences for my behavior. They didn't get caught. They never got a DUI. They never did this or that. I did. Now, why is that? Because God wanted me to be chastened, and he used that to change me. If I had never gotten caught, I'd never been chastened. Scripture says that he chastens those he loves, and he chastens me, and he beat me like a pup. And I hated it at the time. 
But afterwards, that's the best thing that ever happened to me, right? So the evidence that, that, that he was vexed and distressed by this lifestyle and these people was the, is the evidence that he is righteous in the first place. Everybody understand that? So if you're in sin, if you know somebody who claims to be a Christian and they're having an affair, and they have no remorse for that affair. They don't feel guilty of that affair. They're not caught in that affair. And they uh, re- they do not renounce that affair. That's an evidence that they are not righteous people because there's no conscience within them. Everybody understand that? If you are God's, he will bring you to conviction. He will bring you to repentance and he will chasten you. But if you're not God's, you can go on and have no remorse and no conviction. And that is evidence that you're not God's. So we thank him for that. So we see these effects of sin uh, now. Uh, and we see this compromised life. He is an anomaly. Look what he does. Now, he on one. Yes, sir. And we know that God causes all things to work for the good of those who love God and are called to his purpose. So Lot is where he is because God put him there. So as Brother Rusty quotes from uh, Romans 8, 28, all things God causes all things to work for the good to those who are the called. So Lot's. Although it's Lot's rebellion and although it's Lot's choices, God uses those choices to teach us. Though he is dead, he still speaks to us, right? And so he does work it for his glory eventually. And it's an amazing thing. That's right. He foreknew and he predestined and he called and he justifies and one day he's going to glorify. It's beautiful. God is sovereign. He uses our wickedness to his glory. He doesn't cause the wickedness. He uses it to his glory. And that is a fact. Look at, let's look at the uh, further uh, depravity of Lot here as we see these effects of sin. Look at the compromise of his life. He literally is so enamored with, with uh, his culture. In those days, the Middle Eastern culture was you have to do your very best and your number one priority is to take care of your guests. And so what he does is an unspeakable thing, speaks of his immorality. He chooses when these angels come into Sodom, the citizens of the, the, of the town, they want to lie carnally with these angels, if you can grasp that thought. And so, and so another evidence that Lot is righteous is that he tries to defend the angels and he tries to keep, he actually says this, look what he says to these wicked men, verse six of chapter 19, Genesis. Uh, so, uh, they want to come lie with these angels because it says in, they want to know them carnally. That's a metaphor for we know what that is. Verse six, Lot went out to them through the doorway, shut the door behind him and says, don't do this, brethren. You're doing wickedly. Sign he's righteous. Okay. He, he, he knows what's right and wrong, but look what he says. I got two daughters. You sleep and rape them, but don't, don't do that with these angels. Isn't that, uh, amazing? thing that that you would be so compromised into truth that you would take the the men's regulations and you would be willing to sacrifice your own daughters just so you'd be legalistically right that's sick 
That's sin's effects, okay? So we see that. And so uh, look at this. Look at these effects. And this is, this is so true. To, look at verse 9. Now these wicked men say, uh, the, the angels say, look what uh, 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 he says, verse 9. And they said, stand back. Then they said, this one came in to stay here, and he keeps acting as a judge. When you stand up to wickedness like Lot stood up to homosexuality, he did. Look what they said to him. You're a hypocrite and a judge. Does that sound familiar to what reaction we get today? Does anything change? If you take a stand against sin, you're a hypocrite and a judge. And so these men said, you're a judge. You came in here as a, as a, uh, you moved in here, you became a leader, and now look at you, you're judge. <laughs> Nothing changes. So these men accuse him of being a judge, and they try to get in. Okay, and then uh, uh, the amazing thing here. Now I want to look at one more thing about the effects of sin. Lot tells his sons-in-law, we're going to get out of Dodge because these angels are going to send hellfire and brimstone and judge this world. Look at the reaction of his family to what he says. Have you ever caught this? This is the effects of sin. You lose your credibility. You lose your effectiveness as a parent. Whatever, whenever it is because of sin. Look at this verse 14. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law who had married his daughters and said, get up, get out of this place. The Lord's going to destroy this city. Look what they said. But his sons-in-laws looked at him like he was joking. Lot lost his credibility his compromise of his life and his faith, his claims to be righteous, his claims to hate sin, his claims to be vexed by sin. And then he makes a right choice. He tells them the right thing. And they say, you got to be kidding. Loses his credibility. Ever been there as a parent? I was teaching one time and one of my friends in my class said, I said, now that I tell you not to be a drunk because I was a drunk, am I a hypocrite? And he looked at me and he said, you're a teacher. And I said, what's the difference? He said, a hypocrite says not to be a drunk and still is a drunk. A teacher says, don't be a drunk because I was a drunk and I know the wickedness of being a drunk. That's a teacher. Okay, the difference. So Lot didn't have any of those. He didn't have, he was considered a hypocrite. And he didn't have the credibility of a teacher because he still lived in Sodom. His heart was in Sodom. When, when they told him, how do we know his heart was in Sodom? Because when he was leaving, they told him to leave and he didn't want to leave. Look at verse 16. They're telling him to leave. Arrive. It's time to go. You don't look back. If you look back, you're going to turn into a pillar of salt. Look at verse 16. And while he lingered, he, he still had Sodom in him. He was in the town. He didn't participate in the, in the acts of Sodom, but he still had Sodom in his heart, and he says he lingered. And guess what? Those angels had to grab him and pull him out of there. That's sin's effects. And it lingers within you. And those angels had to grab him. And you know what the scripture says? 
Look at verse 16. The men took him by the hand, his wife's hands, and the hands of his two daughters, the Lord being merciful to him. That is why Lot was spared. That was why Lot was righteous, because the Lord was merciful. If it had been up to Lot, he'd have stayed there and died. You know, the example you gave earlier? Yes. In the New Testament about uh, the demons begging that God wouldn't cast him to, mm-hmm. to hell, but in, you know, instead he put him in. And that's a picture of God's grace, too. Yes. He wasn't even a demon. Yes. Yes. So we see the ugly effects of sin, the compromise on the life. Uh, and we see that his heart was still inside him. He didn't want to leave. We saw that he lost credibility. And this ugly, ugly story, if you think it can't get any worse, it gets worse. Once they're pulled out of Sodom and Gomorrah, if you can believe this, because of the ugly effects of, of, of sin, the compromise of sin and the, the vexing of the soul, guess what? His daughters come up with this wonderful plan. They get Lot drunk, and he has an incestuous relationship with both of his daughters. He doesn't even know he's doing it. And guess what happens out of that? We have the Moabites. And the Moabites are a thorn in the flesh of the nation of Israel for hundreds of years. And God in his sovereignty says, I'm going to take Ruth, who's a Moabite. I'm going to take her and I'm going to make David out of her. Out of her. And God's merciful that despite the wickedness consequences of Lot, God turns it around, uses it, and he takes this Moabite woman who is a heir of the incestuous relationship of Lot and his daughters, and he takes something beautiful out of it, and he brings David into the world. And through David, he brings Jesus Christ. What do you think about that? You meant it for evil, God meant it for good. So, be encouraged, brothers, that if God, if you are God's, He's going to bring you to Himself. He's going to take your situation and He is going to deliver you from it eventually one day, and we have great hope of that. And we, we understand that God is just. So, whatever your situation in, we are in perilous times. I've never seen such fear among Christians in my life. I've never seen such anxiety. I've never seen such hopelessness. I've never seen such, what are we going to do? How does God allow this to happen? God has a purpose in it, and it's for his glory. And it very well may be that God is bringing this to a rapid close, and he's bringing this nation to judgment, and he's going to use the current administration to do that. And so we rejoice and we glorify him because it's not a surprise and it's his purposes and they are good purposes and we can trust him. That's right. So, we may have to suffer, but we're the last person that unsaved person may see or hear. So be encouraged because this is the manna in this dark chapter. God is in control of all this. So take heart. 
What are we going to do if the scripture says, what do the righteous do if the foundations are destroyed? We stay faithful and we stay obedient and we tell the truth and we don't compromise. We be salt and we be light. Is that it? Very good English, Pamela. Sorry. <laughs> we finish the race. Huh? We finish the race. So let's pray. Father, I thank you for the lessons of Lot. And I thank you how you used pitching your tent too near Sodom to change me. And I pray you would use this to change someone else. I praise you that you are in control and you will judge the wicked. And you know how to deliver the godly out of temptation as you delivered Noah and as you delivered Lot. And as you will deliver us. And you will take us out of this place and you will judge the earth. But we will be taken out according to Revelation chapter 3 verse 10. We are hopeful and we look up for our redemption draws near. Help us to be faithful people. Help us to suffer well. Help us to sorrow and mourn sin. But help us to be faithful to your glory. Help us to love one another and be kind to one another. And so fulfill the law and the commandments. We bless you and we thank you for this word. In your name I pray. Amen.